Got a wonderful show today. I got Anthony Grimes with the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences and John Lehman, I'm saying board member, emeritus of uh, FAR. Did I get that right, John? Yep. And he does other things as well. The Recovery Outcomes Institute. Yeah, he dabbles a little bit with technology from time to time, especially at showtime. But (laughs) today we're going to talk about uh, recovery residences here in Virginia. Uh, Some of the things that they did in Florida that they did right, they did wrong, and some of the things that are coming here to Virginia. And we just want to talk about hopefully they do things right, not wrong. But before we get into our dialogue, I, I want Anthony to introduce himself and then John introduce himself. And you go first. Hey, everybody. My name is Anthony Grimes. I'm a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. And I'm also the co-founder of the War Foundation, a recovery residence um, foundation that has 81 certified beds. And I'm, uh, I also serve uh, VAR as the executive director for the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences. What do you got, John? Uh, John Lehman, person in long-term recovery. Began my journey in 1978. My sobriety date is uh, October 26 of 2007, so I earned my seat on the short bus. Uh, but it's been a wild rocket ship ride since that point, and um, I work, uh, I was the co-founder of the Florida Association of Recovery Residents, participated with the National Alliance uh, for Recovery Residents in the promulgation of a set of standards for the operation of recovery residences, and then worked here in Florida to um, uh, engage our law enforcement and our legislature to develop uh, laws and then enforce those laws to protect the population that we serve from predators who had entered the space and were taking advantage of them for profit uh, and weren't really concerned with how well or um, sober they were. So uh, we've made some real progress over the last uh, seven years in that effort. And um, and now I serve the Recovery Outcomes Institute and uh, work with Dr. David Bess in uh, development of rec- uh, recovery support services that measurably enhance outcomes. Well, good. Uh, that was a pretty long-winded answer, but we'll take it, okay? Uh, <laughs> short, that was short, short burst, okay? You don't want to melt down the old machine gun barrel. Now, most people do know me, but those that don't know, I, I too, am a person in long-term recovery. I've, I use the word clean. I've been clean since 1982. But for the purpose of this discussion, I did start my own recovery house, and I've been in the recovery housing industry since 1985. So, I have a lot of experience with dealing with recovery residences, recovery housing. I'm also, I guess come, some would say I'm maybe one of the founders of VAR years ago and then recently got reignited. But here's, here's, here's my first big question for both of you. John, short answer though. Where, where exactly did the sober home business in Florida go wrong? What was like the top couple few things where they went wrong? Uh, I think it began with, uh, in 2011, some members of the sober home community were attracted to the concept of being able to bill an insurance company for uh, collecting the urine that was then uh, billed out by the laboratory for analysis. So, so that's where it, that's where it went wrong. 
Now I heard they were they were letting people stay free in the sober house as long as they could collect the urine and bill for it. Yeah, but that's not where it started, John. It started in 2011 with a laboratory uh, that was a, you know, in a operated by an individual here in Delray Beach that um, was going out and calling on sober homes, and he was saying, "Hey, if you get a CLIA waiver." you can build the insurance company for collecting the urine. I'll send my van around to pick up the urine samples. I'll do the analysis from my little laboratory. I'll build the insurance company for the analysis and you can earn $100, $125 per collection. And if you do that two or three times a week, you'd make you know, $250, $375 a week in additional revenue. And most of the sober homes said, no thanks. But a few said, hey, let me look into this. If it looks like it's legal, that would be great money. It's more than I'm getting in terms of rent. And then they went along with it. And, and, and that attracted a number of predators to enter the space that didn't know anything about recovery housing, didn't know anything about recovery, but they heard there was money to be made. Now, so was that all legal back then? It was. And then the insurance companies figured out that the, that the sober homes were getting into this mix and they said, no, 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 no. What happens in a sober home isn't medically necessary. We're not going to pay for anything that happens there. And then that, what, what then happened was those people had gotten a taste of the money and they say, what we'll do is we'll apply to the department of children, and family services to get an outpatient license. And that is medically necessary and we'll house them and we'll treat them and we get paid for treatment and we'll also get paid for urinalysis. And then, and then it mushroomed. So they all went into the outpatient business with relationships with sober homes. Yeah. And then what they thought was a nice legal loophole, somebody cracked down on it and said, whoa, you can't do this no more. The insurance companies start pay stopped paying sober homes. So they needed, the ones that wanted to chase the money had to get licensed as treatment providers. And initially they were still charging rent, but they were also billing for your analysis at the treatment center uh, or ordering the tests from the treatment center. And then the labs were, and then other, and then once this started, now the sober home said, Hey, why am I got this middleman, this laboratory, I could start my own laboratory and it became a triangle. So I got the housing, I got the laboratory, I got the outpatient treatment uh, center. They're all under my umbrella and I'm raking in the dough. And, and then the last piece of this puzzle was the patient brokering piece where, where the, the, the individual residents in those several homes began to figure out that those insurance cards from their parents were the equivalent of American Express. Yeah, Black card. gold card, man. Yeah, and they, and they said, you know what? We're not going to pay no rent. And, and if you want me, if you want my pee, you're going to have to give me an iPhone. If you want my pee, you're going to need to give me a scooter. If you want my pee, since you don't even pay any attention to what the results of those pee tests are, I'm going to continue to smoke dope. I'm going to continue to shoot dope. I'm going to continue to drink right here on the front porch of your sober home. And you're going to, you're going to let me because you know I'm your meal ticket. Right. And came crashing and burning and 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 the net of it was 
you go into the NA meetings and the AA meetings that were going on at that time, and all of these kids were getting transported over to those, and they didn't want to go to a meeting. They didn't give a rat's ass about recovery, and they were, and they were going in and out and smoking cigarettes and making plans to get um, you know hook up with somebody out in the parking lot and um, and even scoring dope out in the parking lots, and it completely disrupted what had once been one of the most coherent and and cohesive recovery communities in the country if not the world so it, it was a it was just a disaster so it went from quality cohesive recovery community to a great big clusterfuck yeah that's exactly what happened yeah now, it, now it, it took about three and a half years to get to the worst of it right we, i got it Meanwhile, we're out knocking on you. You know, you you and I talked about this while it was going on. I'm out knocking on doors. I'm I'm meeting with the attorney general. I'm meeting with the Department of Children and Family Service, uh, Substance Licensing. I'm meeting with the state attorneys, with the sheriff's departments, with the police departments in the in the various different cities, including Delray Beach. And everybody agrees this is horrible. Somebody ought to do something about it. And then they point their finger at some other agency and say, "You need to go talk to them." And I couldn't get law enforcement to enforce the laws that were already already on the books. And and meanwhile, you've got the NIMBY group out there that's using this information to uh, to champion. Let's get rid of all the sober homes. They're all bad. They're all addicts, and we don't want them in our neighborhoods. And look what happens when you let a couple in. And so we're fighting that battle. And finally, in 2014, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement decided to pull a insurance fraud investigator out of retirement. His name was Lieutenant Bill Griffin. He had about 25 years of experience. And he came in and it took him two weeks, John, two weeks. He came in and he said, this is the biggest insurance fraud case I've ever seen. I think it may be the largest in the history of the United States. We can't handle this without the FBI. He pulled in the FBI and we began to get some traction. And then the judges in Palm Beach County, after the first two raids, said, well, Mr. FBI, you, you, you're not entitled to access to those records. That's, that's personal health information. You didn't, get, you didn't ask the permission of all those clients before you went perusing their files. So you can't use any of that information you gained from those raids. And it took another year to get all that cleaned up legislatively. So by 2015, we were back in in action, and that's when the real cleanup began. But during that one-year gap from the point where they first started to raid to a year later when the, the, the challenges in court got uh, 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 rectified, it was like corn gasoline on a raging fire. Because these two guys, Eric Schneider and and um, and uh, Ken Ballison, that had been raided by the FBI, were, were were walking around Palm Beach County free, and telling anybody that wanted to listen, you know, the feds can't do a thing, and that brought all of the predators into the space. I mean, they were come, there were people coming in and buying properties to turn into sober homes slash treatment centers that didn't know of the first thing about treatment or about recovery they were just so how, in let's fast months. forward how is yeah. it now? did they get it, it all cleaned it, up yeah is it all cleaned up no but um there's some stragglers i'd say that probably uh 10 of the predator group which 
it was a big group by the 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 time uh, 2015 rolled around. Uh, still remain. They they gotten smart and they've gotten clever and and they're still getting caught, but it's a lot more effort to document their cases. But but the vast majority have closed down and, and left town. Well, good. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Johnny Fab. I see you on there, and Sarah. Good to see you once again. Now, now, Anthony, moving on to you. What's the climate in Virginia right now with the uh, with VAR with the with the recovery residences? <clears throat> so, in, in respects of this topic, uh, Virginia has really been a very um, authentic peer to peer um, type of movement. All of our recovery residences really don't indulge in a lot of clinical stuff. While if you need some extra care, you go to a good certified recovery residence, they'll link you to somebody in the community who can provide that service for you. And that's separate from the recovery residents. Um, so basically what we're seeing now is an uptick on Medicaid expanded in Virginia, as you know, which, which is a great thing because uh, it enabled a lot of people who couldn't get insurance previously to obtain some level of insurance to get some of those community based supports. But what we're now seeing is, is we're seeing an uptick in um, agencies and providers that own IOPs. Um, and, and now they're trying to come into the housing space. And, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but you know, what we're seeing now is we're seeing this guy over here has got an IOP and um, he just took a guy that got out of a Medicaid treatment center. The guy's got nowhere to go. He was referred to the IOP and the IOP needs to house him somewhere. So the IOP is going to call McShin or one of these other certified organizations and say, hey, can we pay you to house this guy in a certified bed? And we we've talked to the state about getting some clarity. Is that illegal in Virginia? And that's something that we're still looking into. And we're waiting on some more clarification. You know, I can see where it can be done wrong, John. I can see where people could take advantage and there could be a lot of inducements and pay for play, so to speak. But I can also see where, hey, if a guy's got nowhere to go and we're going to get him into a safe, certified recovery residence, it may it may not be a bad model either. So. I want to say hello to Patrick, Huey, Johnny, but Johnny asked a question, I guess to you, John Lehman, how did that cleanup happen? How was confidentiality overcome during that one year period when the, remember when they did the raids, then the judge said there was a confidentiality issue. How did they overcome that? Uh, legislatively. So the, the problem wasn't federal law. The problem was state law. And, and at some point in time, whenever the state drafted and passed legislation uh, in the, you know, st at the state level around PHI, uh, personal health information, they, 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 almost, they mimicked the federal law all the way to mi midway through and then, and then they stopped and they, they altered it. And, and it was those alterations that brought this to the judge's attention and said, I don't understand why federal law is, that the FBI showing me is this, and Florida starts out mimicking it, mirroring it all the way down to here, and then it, it varies. And so you, you need to go back to the legislature and get me some clarity before I rule on it. So they had a bill passed in Florida. That's what changed things. Yeah. So, so ultimately, what happened was that got rewritten. But it, but there was an interim step, and this is important because it's difficult to 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 get all that legislation written 
and then supported. But what happened was uh, the the legislature allocated $300,000 to the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office, Dave Despite Aaron. Despite the fraud. Well, yeah, but to create a silver home task force. And then part of the role of that task force was to make rec legislative recommendations. So all that, that wordsmith and all that crafting got done there. We, I was part of that. And then, and then because it, because the legislature had paid 300,000 to get this piece of work done when this yeah, piece of work came up, it, they said, let's do that. Yeah. So yeah, we got it done in a year and it could have taken five years. Yeah, well, I see Bonnie on the uh, live stream. She's from the North Pole. So I, I imagine, Bonnie, you have recovery igloos up here somewhere. So I just wonder how you got one bathroom for seven people in an igloo, but maybe you can answer that later in the show. Anthony, here we are in Virginia, and it looks like the Florida shuffle is coming to Virginia. Now, me, you, and the people we run with, I know we run really good recovery residences. You know, we do it right, mainly with people in recovery. We know what time of day it is. But all of a sudden, you got these ILPs open up. Now, now how is it that can an ILP have a sober house, or why would Medicaid I know you can't answer that question, but it seems to me Medicaid, maybe they should reimburse for recovery residences, if nothing else, to prevent fraud in the private sector side. I mean, y'all give any thought to that, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, you nailed the head. The I mean, you hit the nail on the head, John. We have we have uh, looked at some other models that have been introduced where um, there's been what they call housing vouchers, so a recovery residence facility doesn't have to bill Medicaid, so to speak, like a clinical agency would. Um, and we've looked at um, that's where the thirty dollars a day came from, as far as for reimbursement. That's what we foresee the model being. But uh, we're still a little ways from getting there, but. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think it's cheaper for Medicaid to reimburse up to 90 days in recovery residence than to send somebody to treatment for five times and get billed by IOPs, you know, for who knows how long. That's two different pools of money, though. Medicaid's tax-funded, IOPs is commercial insurance-funded. So two, to, two different buckets of money, I guess. So what would you say to these IOPs that are opening up and, they, and I mean, it might be perfectly legal to have a sober home connected to an IOP. You know, that's I, I think is that the million dollar question, Anthony? Right. Well, uh, and it's not just that. It, it, it's it's is it legal to take profits because some of these IOPs are able to build Medicaid, John. Keep that in mind. And what they're doing is, is they're taking the profits from the services they're providing at the IOP and paying for housing. Is that legal or illegal? And I'm, I'm afraid that it may not be illegal in Virginia. And then the question then becomes, because like uh, John Lane was talking about, they had to develop some laws after they saw what was going on to kind of combat it in the future. So, you know, I got a question for you, John. Do you view, John S., do you view an IOP that's providing a good service and is going to pay for a guy to stay over at McShin and one of your recovery residences, do you view that differently than that IOP giving somebody cash to come into groups? Well, I think if you give somebody cash to come into a group, to me, that smells of fraud. Right. But if IOPs were going to have relationships with certified housing and wanted to fund them, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that'd be the worst thing in the world with the exception as long as the uh, recovery residents, residents have the autonomy, right. you know, say, look, this ain't a good fit for us. They relapse too much. You're not serious or whatever. 
you know, so I have to give it more thought though, but I, I often thought over the years, being that I now have 33 years or 34, hell, I might have 30 something years worth of experience with recovery residences. I, I often thought if a sober home recovery house had a good relationship with an IOP and they, and they were funding the bed spot, that could give the consumer a better outcome. So I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a, there's a good mix, a good cohesive mix there somewhere, but people are chasing money. And anytime you chase money, you're inventing, you know, money outcome, not necessarily recovery outcome. You know, I think the three of us would agree that we're recovery outcome oriented people. None of us are in this line of work or came into this line of work for the money, but, you, I see it all the time. People start specialty businesses because that, they know that's where they're going to get the money reimbursed. And then that invites fraud down the road sooner or later. And this is why we're having this discussion. You know, I got two guys on here, John Lehman, you got great experience with, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly down in Florida. Anthony, you're tip of the spear for law here in Virginia. You need to be aware of the pitfalls. So this is why we're having that discussion, you know, so, I don't know, John Lehman, you got any add on value? I think I do. Um, I don't have an answer, but I, but I can tell you where the answer lies. Um, so the, the challenge is, as you've identified, both of you identified, when you open up the door for a treatment provider, outpatient level treatment to pay for housing in a sober home, there is an opportunity for both the client and the outpatient provider to take advantage of that to house individuals who are not committed to recovery and don't even want to be involved in the IOP. What they want is free room and board. And they're going to work alone in a meal card. And they're going to work the system for as long as they can. And so they get kicked out of one and because they relapse, they're they're going to find another one and they're going to start again, right? And 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 that group will be attracted to this, and they and we and we are a clever group of people, our tribe. So we're you know, you and I have spent a lot of time learning how to be authentic and genuine and honest and transparent. But we had to learn all those things because when we arrived at the front door of recovery, we had a different skill set. At least I know I did. And, and so I was really good at convincing you about what I wanted to do, even though it wasn't what I wanted to do. It was what you wanted to hear. So, so that's the challenge. The first challenge is that clients will work the system the minute you open the door. The second challenge is that, that even good programs who started down the path to help people achieve sustainable recovery in through treatment services come to rely on the fact that this group of individuals who aren't really interested in recovery but are interested in a free bed and a free meal ticket are filling their beds and keeping the revenue flowing through their system and they're not and and so they're not willing to uh, apply the same rules. Yeah, that recovery they, brothers, they turn into flop houses like they did down in Florida. Yeah. But so hey, what, we, got, we got a question here. Denny okay. Wilson, he, he he wants to know, is NAR considering a fifth level? Anthony, that might be a question for you. 
So um, to date, I have not heard anything about a fifth level. We are on a uh, standards version 3.0 and um, in 3.0, it's still remains to be levels of standards. And I have not heard any talk of a fifth level. Yeah, Denny, Denny also, act, I think he's trying to tell me it's legal. I guess in Ohio where he, where he lives, he likes that there's a good mix recovery residences can cover and offer so much more than traditional treatment. I agree with that. You got inpatient treatment. You can have great outpatient, great recovery residences. Me and Anthony, we run, we run recovery residences where basically the individual has to have a job, pay their bed fees and, you know, launch to become a useful productive member of society. You know, I, I guess I got mixed good feelings about all the possibilities. I'm just skeptical of people chasing money. You know what I mean? That, and I don't want to, this is America. We, 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 we're all entitled to chase money and make as much as we can. But anytime you start manipulating the system for money and an individual gets hurt, that ain't a good thing. You know what I mean? You got to watch out for that consumer protection. I think yeah. is what we're talking about here. And there's two sides to that coin. So, so as you've already identified, I'm brand new. I was in residential. I just stepped down to PHP level of care 25 hours a week and outpatient. I can't go looking for a job. I, I, I don't have any time. But now, mm -hmm. I, now I stepped down two weeks later to IOP. Well, here in Florida, if you're IOP, you got to pay your own rent. If, if mom pays it, it's okay. If Uncle Johnny pays it, it's okay. If the state pays it, it's okay. But if the treatment center, if the outpatient treatment center pays for it, it's an inducement. It's an inducement to en to entice this individual to remain enrolled in the IOP. And that ain't fair. But they've held the line there because of the predator group. And so the, you know, the, the state attorney isn't willing to make any recommendation to our legislature to open the opportunity for a treatment center to make a payment for housing for an individual for an interim period while they go out and find a job, get their first paycheck, and now they can pay their own way. So the channel is to create a bucket of housing voucher dollars that are coming from the treatment providers but it's not a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's not, here's money and my guy is going to come to your sober home. It's, I'm gonna put this much money into the bucket and then I'm gonna refer clients in to be assessed. And if you determine they meet the cr criteria for a housing voucher, then you will issue it. And all of the money that went into that bucket gets spent on that. And that is a path that could work. Yeah, and that me, far, yeah, think, yeah. far should be the agencies that are responsible for the administration of that. Yeah, let me uh, throw a little shit in the mix here. Like, like Anthony, so right now in Virginia, you can be in a Medicaid house where that, I think they got the arts program that might fund a little bit of this, where if you can be living in a house the Medicaid pays for, which is tax dollars, you get your substance use disorder treatment, mental health treatment. Now, the outpatient program, the insurance reimburses, which some might argue might be a higher level of care, a better level of care. I don't know, you know, jury's still out on that. But if they pay for recovery residences, I mean, that 
I could see where they would keep them in that situation for a year or two, or as long as the benefit would let them. But I got to believe when the benefit run out, they'd run out the person in that bed too. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, but I, I'm not sure that's the worst thing in the world either. You know, if, if as long as they're not exploiting the consumer. Right. And, and keep in mind, too, you know, the ones that we have locally here, I mean, they're contacting the bar office. They're they're not trying to remain in the shadows and talk to people in back alleys at this point, at least the ones that have contacted us. Right. So if they are technically doing something illegal, I will tell you, I do not believe that they know it's illegal. And I'm not sure it even is illegal. Really, I don't believe it is here in Virginia at this point. And the second thing is, is obviously whenever money's involved, you have the opportunity for, for somebody to get greedy and do something wrong. That's in any business or any industry in the world, basically. But, you know, what about the opportunity to really help somebody? You know, the guy that's coming back down from a Medicaid treatment center in Northern Virginia, got no family, got nowhere to go, but he's got that Medicaid card. So he gets linked up with this Shin Foundation to, to, to get his start. Yeah. Hey, uh, Hannah, where do you live at? Hannah Lloyd, you need a sober home for sure. Where Where is that at, your locality? But I want to back up on a statement Denny Wilson made. Denny says, I'm a founding board member of Ohio Recovery Housing, the NAR affiliate for the state. NAR has been considering the new level for years, I guess level five. I feel as long as quality standards and accountability are in place, the consumer, the resident, benefits regardless of payer of source there has to be monitoring there will always be there will always be ways to exploit the system yeah you're right about that Danny there's a way to exploit it for money somebody's going to find it but Denny seems to think the folks in Ohio that you know if it's a good run operation you know so be it I agree you know and Denny says, I'm just glad recovery housing is finally recognized as viable. We Me too. Ways to go. Yeah. I feel like I live in a recovery house almost 38 years clean. It's me and my wife, man. You know, I got accountability at probably a higher level than I ever got in a recovery house I, I lived in 35 years ago. So, mm. Hannah Lloyd, Roanoke, you hear that, uh, Anthony? You got any our affiliates in Roanoke? Uh, not at the moment. We have two organizations that are applying for membership. Um, in Roanoke? Yes. Who are they? Uh, I'd have to print out print out their files. They just sent an application in yesterday. Yeah. Hey, Hannah, you can uh, email Anthony. What's your email? Var? Anthony at Var? Yeah. If she, yeah. Agrimesvaronline.org. Yeah, you can Google VAR, Hannah, uh, and you, it'll pop up, and, and you can call Anthony. He'll, he'll talk you through it. But Roanoke needs about three dozen recovery houses. So if there's only two applying, they need more for sure. No but, John Lehman, what's the future look like in America for recovery residences? I think it's, I think it's incredibly strong. Um, I think over the next five years, uh, and, and perhaps – more rapidly, but certainly over the next five years, the, there will be evidence to support that recovery residences measurably enhance outcomes and how, what the causal impact of the delivery of specific recovery support services uh, to individuals that are living within the recovery residence. So there, 
there are you know obvious benefits that we're all aware of that come from just living in a peer supportive alcohol drug free environment but there are more there are recovery coaches are beginning to emerge um in large part because of great work that you've done john uh, and also up in at CCAR in Connecticut as a, um, a viable path to de delivering concrete recovery support services, employment support, you know, how do you get engaged in the community? How do you, you know, begin to develop a career path past the you know, recovery job? Uh, how do I learn how to manage money? How do I improve my financial literacy? There are a series of life skills programming uh, and support uh, that, that can be delivered within the recovery residence sector. And it can be delivered either by coaches that are employed by the recovery center, the, the recovery uh, residents, or coaches that are employed at a recovery community organization that is separate from the recovery housing. And they, and they provide the service to the residents on a voluntary or on a paid basis. Uh, and, and, and I think what we're gonna see is is studies that demonstrate from an evidence-based perspective how these recovery support services that are delivered within the context of certified recovery housing is improving outcomes for the individuals that participate. Yeah, John Lane, I'm gonna drop I want to drop back in a minute on you because I want you to talk a little bit about that new data platform y'all launched down there. But I want to throw this out there in the Richmond, Virginia area, I know we probably have close to a thousand sober beds, you know, spread out amongst a bunch of different operators. I'm certain that's one less jail we need in this community. I've also noticed during COVID-19, like all our houses are full. We almost got a waiting list. All these guys and girls that would normally be in jail, they're in sober living. They're actually thriving during this COVID-19 period. They're actually doing pretty good. So that data platform you guys created I think that's the evidence that the, the United States has been waiting for. And uh, just, just briefly touch on that, you know, what, what you're yeah, seeing pretty, so far. Uh, well, it, 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 what we're seeing so far is that we've got a handful of FAR programs that are uh, operators and probably about 400 beds uh that that we're collecting data through it and delivering services within those recovery residences and and now we've got uh 10 11 uh var members that are coming on board we're in discussions with um, several other state affiliates and and the and the and the real push is to be able to a deliver concrete services in a uniform way that is measured in itself and then collect data as to what uh, how, what is the impact on the recovered capital of that population that received those services at incremental stages across their continuum of recovery? So a baseline assessment when they first arrive at the uh, residence, uh, 90 days, 180 days, and perhaps even beyond 180 days, uh, because the, the, the portal, the client portal or the resident portal remains open even when they're in alumni status and they can continue to um, uh, complete those assessments on a, on a, on a quarterly so who, basis. Who uses this platform so far in, in America? Uh, well, we, we, as I said, we have um, uh, a, a little less than a, uh, or a little more than a half a dozen uh, beta test 
group here in Florida. Uh, one of them is Fellowship Living. You know Rick Riccardi. That's a 212-bed wow. program, and they've been uh, they've implemented it uh, for a period of two years, um, and we've used them as a shop to enhance the system and learn what we need to do from a development technology perspective to make it easy to use it. And we've done that. And then recently, uh, the Virginia Association of Recovery Residents, Mr. Grimes, uh, and his board of directors uh, uh, made the decision to move forward. And all of the uh, programs that are certified by uh, VAR are participating, and we're just about to launch that in June, so, uh, so we're right around the corner. And we'll collect data from July 1 um, through December 31st, and then build a, uh, uh, go through the analysis with Dr. Best, and then we'll put that out into one of the journals, um, whether it's drug and alcohol dependence or one of the others. And, um, and further the evidence base around this. Uh, and then we, we recently were um, successful in launching yeah. uh, this program in Canada. So all, um, all seven provinces in the country of Canada are, are implementing the software platform. And it's going to be uh, both recovery support services, but also it's going to be adopted by the clinical program. So all those outpatient and, and that are funded by the Canadian government, they're all going to be using it too. So it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. Hey, John. Yes. Let me ask a question. I see uh, Danny got a copy. We'll, we'll get one to Anthony and John. The, uh, now, I do want to give a shout out to the state of Virginia. It looks like they're finally stepping up into the recovery residence space. They funded the bar office, which I think is a really good thing. They finally put a little bit of money out there for reimbursement for some indigents that don't have any real way to cover their cost of these uh, sober living beds. But I, I think if we do this right, we can show the rest of the nation that you get a better outcome for less money than we're going to get in the justice system, which... I now call the substance use disorder justice system because <laughs> I'm not so sure how many criminals are over there. But uh, so I think this is the future in America. I think the next 20 years, man, is going to be big. I think we can drive down in in-house correction stays, increase recovery, sober living stays, produce more people in recovery, which produce healthier communities. So see, I think this is all good. I just think moving forward here in Virginia, Anthony, we got to watch what happened in other states, try to stay on top ahead of the curve. Uh, if we can get, if we, you know, it's funny, we got, I think on any given day, we got about 70,000 people in the Virginia, in the jails and the prison. And that's not counting pretrial, probation, or really bad off. And, and we probably, I don't think Virginia has, I don't know, they might have two, 300 uh, treatment beds, tax funded treatment beds. But I think the increase in tax-funded sober living would definitely be a great trade-off from corrections. So I think if we tweak some drug policies, do better programming in jails and prisons, do the sober sober living, I, I'm telling you, man, 10, 15, 20 years from now, I think we'll be in good shape. Anthony, you got, you got any thoughts, Anthony? No, I mean, it's exciting stuff. I mean, this is, you know, when we talk about trying to get uh, – Medicaid to cover somebody's stay or, you know, we talk about 
trying to ask for more money and divert it from the criminal justice system to the recovery residences that we know are effective. Um, that's what the data is all about. You know, as you know, John, I mean, you know, it's easy for me to tell you, hey, John, I had this guy come in, man, man, he was broke, homeless. He came to my recovery residence and in six months he had a job. And by the time he got a year clean, man, he was on his third job, making $25 an hour, got a relationship with his kid back on his four step. And you can understand why he made it. You know, hell, he's doing the damn thing. He, you know, he's about his recovery. But this is a way for us to show what happened during that year span or that six months. You know, what steps did he take? How did it work? Just for the record, though, see, McShin has been cranking out data now for 16 years. So we already know we got great evidence based data. But, you know, if, if Red Cap's going to be the one that they're going to recognize the arms platform, that's no problem there. But I'll tell you what I like about these platforms. It really makes the individuals in the houses do the work, you know, do the data entry, stay on top of each other, accountability. And I, and, and I just I don't see those outpatient programs. I see them doing it, but they've already got built in staff to do that. It does add an extra, you know, layer of cost on us doing that, you know. So, but I imagine we'll, we'll get it all worked out. John Layman, any, any thoughts on the accountability of the people doing the data and, and collections and whatnot? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we're doing now is we're building um, what we call navigator performance metrics into the system. So the navigator is the recovery coach that's doing working with the individual to build a recovery plan that's informed by the assessment information that came out of the rec app. and then they're meeting with that client on a on a periodic basis whether that's weekly or bi-weekly or monthly they're meeting with them to review how well that client is actually engaging in the execution or implementation of that plan because you can put a lot of real good effort into planning but if nobody gets off their butt and does what they said they were going to do, i.e. the client, then then no change is going to take place. So we're building metrics into the system to to make certain that the people that are doing the work at, at, that are staff are, in fact, doing what they were trained to do. And then we're also building metrics in the system to see whether the client and to what level the client is engaging in the execution of that plan. And armed with those two sets of data, we're now able to to look at what were the outcomes based on did the navigator do what the navigator was supposed to do? Did the client do what the client said they were going to do? And did the outcome that we expected to take place as a result of that action, uh, in fact, take place? And 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 so that that's a data set that we've been anxious to have, and we're we're beginning that with with uh, the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences. In in June, that's that's a couple of days away. So we're really excited by that. Yeah, we we've been waiting for a while to go and launch that because we know we're gonna we're gonna do real well with that. Yep. The um, you know, I can see Anthony. Let's say we get all these recovery houses using the arms. You know how our we get we get a transient population in these houses. You know, leadership. I'm assuming is going to be critical in each of these houses. Anthony, you got some thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, as you know, John, um, we did a uh, VAR uh, sponsored a, a peer leader training that the McShin Foundation hosted. And, um, you know, the feedback from from that was was you had a lot of VAR uh, certified 
peer leaders or house managers, as some people call them, that were on that training and the feedback from your staff and, and, and from all of us that, that logged in and out of that train and just to kind of see how it was done. I mean, the feedback was amazing that that we have some great peer leaders here in Virginia that are, are, are managing the day to day operations of the level two houses that they're responsible for. And the organizations are doing a great job of training them up and making sure that they're prepared. Do on to do well. So, you know, I, I think that here locally, and 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 you've known this for a lot of time, is, is that we have a great emphasis on leadership, leading by example, making sure people are in the right positions to succeed. So, um, and I know what you're saying. Let me ask you a question, Anthony. The um, how how do the women houses stack up against the men houses? What's easier to run and operate? It's a trick question. <laughs> Depends on if you're asking me or my wife. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I think I think they're both challenging in different in different areas, honestly. Uh, oh, hell, let me tell you, I'm going to confirm women houses are a lot harder to manage than men houses, man. <laughs> I mean, the complexity is incredible. We're fortunate. We got some great women leaders, man. We I don't know anybody does it better. You, your wife, y'all do a great job over at uh, War Foundation. So. But if you can crack the code on how to run successful female houses, man, I think we should get out of this duty pay for that stuff, man. <laughs> John, you got any input on it in Florida? What's the difference in women and men? Are they all running about the same or you get any? No, as you as you have pointed out, and, and, and I think we all agree, it is, it is different needs, um, different drivers, uh, and there are very different uh, outcomes uh, from a recovery capital perspective as well. So all of our evidence suggests that um, that that well, the male population will generally have a need to get some focus on social capital. Uh, females generally have a very high social capital score. Uh, but they have low personal capital scores and they have low community capital scores. And, and so getting them engaged in the recovery community is more difficult uh, in a sustained way. And then also it's more difficult to, to uh, help them develop um, personal capital. So uh, it, 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 there are different drivers or different challenges and there's and thus the different need for leadership. But here's what is definitely true. When you get a couple of strong women in a, in a, that, are, that are recovery centric, living in a house or managing a house, that, that population is going to get busy doing the right thing for the right reasons and or they're going to go live somewhere else. So that yeah, you got to have a good mother goof and all them. Yeah, yeah, houses, yeah. Man. And, and, and best we all you know, to the we're, we we males can play a, a good role from an administrative perspective of, from afar. But uh, we, we're not terribly effective when we get involved in actually running one of those houses and interacting with the residents themselves. Yeah, I see. Hey, Debbie, good to see you on. Debbie, she's one of our board members. She shows up at all our shows, it seems like. But Denny Wilson made a good comment. He said when it comes to women homes, as long as each, as long as each woman got their own bathroom, you you're yeah, I can see what that would be a plus. I grew up with four sisters, man. I, 
I peed out back for the first 15 years of my life. <laughs> no, no shot of getting in the bathroom at all, man. Uh, so we got we got about eight minutes left. So anything you want to, you know, remember we're gonna this this video will be viewed over and over and over. It'll probably go into jails and prisons, you know, because we got some stuff worked out with the tablets. And what? How about how about guys in corrections? Uh, either one, he can comment. Um, how important would it be to come from a correctional environment to a recovery house if substance use disorders is your issue? Anthony, you. Anthony you go first because I know where you've been. So the 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 correctional population, I'm gonna tell you what I see. I get more guys who call um, the War Foundation just as everybody else does, and, and more men and women that call us and they need a bed and they don't have any money. And I'm gonna be honest with you, that population comes in, especially when they don't have any money and we're scholarshiping them and they're on some type of funding. And that population gets to work, man. I mean, they come in and, and, and their gratitude is much higher than than other participants who have you know a lot of extra support i mean this is the most underserved population in america i believe is the population coming from the criminal justice system to the street with no help with substance use disorder so you, coming, you, were, you were in corrections right i absolutely was i was in corrections myself and it wasn't my first go around with recovery, but I can tell you what that first go around in recovery did for me. It planted the seed that when I was ready, I knew where to come and get some help. You know, I'll never forget. My daddy took me up to an RCO in Richmond, Virginia, and I met this guy named John S. And my daddy paid for a month's rent and said, don't ever call me again and left. And I said, what in the hell am I going to do now? And I, and I'd like to tell you I stayed clean at that point, but I didn't. I ended up relapsing, coming back and forth. And then I went to corrections for about 14 months. And when I came out, I went directly back to that foundation. And let me tell you what, I've been clean ever since. Yeah, I remember you you were, you were challenging me about how we were running these recovery houses. I said, if you can do a better job, go start your own recovery <laughs> house. Now look at you, you got one of the best organizations in Virginia. John, you got a problem with corrections in Florida? Uh, yeah, we the problem we have in, uh, with corrections in Florida is that our legislature doesn't see a need to properly fund the corrections Department of Correction. That's the first problem we got. Um, but we have a couple, and they had difficulty staying online, but but they succeeded. We uh, we have a partner, the Transition House, uh, that is a. Um, uh, addiction treatment program and a work release platform, a minimum security private contractor, and individuals who are nonviolent criminals uh, and also have two years left on their term are provided from any of the prisons in Florida an opportunity to go to the Transition House or Stuart Marchman or, or another program called The Bridge. And they can get treated uh, for about four to six months. And once the clinical team says, okay, it's, it's time for them to start working, they help them get a job. They put an ankle bracelet on them. They go out and work in the community and they come back to the minimum faci uh, security facility in the evenings and weekends. And, um, and they, they run out the remainder of their 18 months or however long they've got to go doing that. And when they walk out of the transition house, they walk out of the transition house with very high recovery capital and a big fat check that was uh, money that was saved as a result of their um, uh, their working uh, for 18 months. And all of their court ordered payments are generally paid off. So they're 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 
you know, the challenge is to make certain that they do the right thing with that money, but, 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 but most of them do. And, and they become an incredible uh, resource for others that are coming out of the criminal justice system uh, and into recovery. So, so there's some really good things that are happening in Florida. And there's, and there's also the challenges around our legislature. You know, Florida is not a, a friendly state when it comes to uh, substance abuse treatment dollars, correction dollars, and or recovery support you know, dollars. That, that reentry program you just described to me, I introduced to Virginia almost word for word 15 years ago. They looked at me like I was crazy, man. You, you're cutting into our industry, man. We ain't trying to decrease our correction population. Right, right. Increase it, man. I yeah. mean, recovery is clearly the enemy of, of decreasing yeah. correction populations. And, and as you know, John, Dr. Best, David Best, is his, his professor of, of criminology and psychology. So, you know, when we first launched the RECAP, we launched it in Home House Prison in the UK. We've got it working in New Zealand right now in a prison there called Odyssey. And, and, and we're learning a lot about recovery. There's a very different uh, profile of, you know, for individuals who are, are incarcerated when it comes to, you know, it's, it, the community capital is, is the, you know, uh, they, they, they don't get to go out and play in the community. So the community is the prison, but there are opportunities to, in, in, to, to, to work within the prison to build a sense of community that can be carried out of the prison once you uh, are released. So uh, there's huge possibilities. This is an area of um, uh, particular interest for David, and and we're and we do what we can to support that here at the Recovery Outcomes. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been to UK several times lecturing all around UK. I, I spoke. I know I spoke in Blackpool. Uh, in Blackpool Prison, it was job great. Friends, job friends in houses. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been there. I know those guys. Uh, great organization, man. I mean, hell, man. I, I mean, UK is a little bit ahead of us, you know. I think on a lot of things, gang. We're coming down to our, our last couple minutes. You know, we keep these around an hour. I think this was an incredibly in, informative conversation. I'll give you guys one last opportunity to make a quick statement because we ain't got but two minutes left. I'll start with you first, Anthony. Closing closing statement. Well, we'd like to thank you for having us on, John. Thank the McShen Foundation for hosting this. And, um, you know, to anybody who's watching or listening and, and, and is looking for a certified recovery residence, please contact the bar office. You know, we haven't forgot about Southwest Virginia. We're in talks to bring some recovery supports out there to you. And, and, and we're trying to expand certified recovery residences all throughout the Commonwealth. So we appreciate the support of all of our members and the organizations that are a part of BAR. Thanks for coming on, Anthony. John, what do you got? I said everything that, uh, that that Anthony said. And John, you know, anytime you reach out and ask me to show up for anything, I'm coming, brother. Uh, yeah, even though you're late, you don't know how to work the shit you're dealing with. Yeah, but good, man. We're all learning, man. We're all learning. I make all sorts of mistakes, and I will continue to do that for as long as I'm breathing. But I, I, I don't realize we ain't going to be perfect. Well, I appreciate y'all coming on. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Um, once again, I hope it was informative. You got something out of it. I know I did. I believe we did. And uh, more will be revealed more later. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good.